And we are off for Atwood Unleashed 6. Three hours of back-to-back -back guests, pulling no punches, culminating with Corey Feldman, final guest in the third hour. Huge thank you to all the people who watched the lineup video today and joined Patreon. Like we've been saying for the previous episodes, this was eventually going to go over to Patreon for hours two and three, and that is commencing tonight. The link for Patreon will be put in the description box if Ash watching this wants to handle that. And tiers two and upwards will get access to all the perks listed, including weekly hours two and three of this Outward Unleashed. We're building a whole new community. And as you can imagine, we have a team of people putting this together and it takes a week. There's a lot of moving parts and there are certain costs to make this possible. So a huge thank you again to all the people supporting this on Patreon. Now, to go over to the general lineup for the evening. We're going to start out right away with the Maxwell case. <laughs> we have got criminal defense lawyer, Robert Gruller Esquire, talking with us about Maxwell, as well as the possible defenses that she could use in this federal case. 6.35 to 7, author Jesse Fink and Louis Navia are going to be talking about Navia's biography, Pure Narco. He was a trafficker for the Colombian and Mexican cartels and also worked under Escobar. Then at 7, when we cross over to Patreon, Kareen Hutzibout, FBI-trained criminal profiler, goes into prisons, interviews the most insidious offenders in terms of the crimes we've been discussing on this channel just euphemizing it's the first five minutes on youtube they don't like anything too hardcore you know what she's all about it's going to get dark she's going to discuss not just her work cases but also her academy to support abuse victims more great work right 7 30 to 8 jock pal freeman He's going to tell his story of being banged up abroad in a Bulgarian prison. Innocent man. He was snatched for murder, put in there. He was a UK soldier and sentenced to 20 years. He was an active member of the British Army at the time of the incident. This is a place where the gangs were chaining people up and having them fight like dogs, telling them to bite each other while they were chain on chains. So, hardcore personal story there. 8, 8.30, narco journalist Toby Muse. Been on the front lines in Colombia, talking about his book, Kilo, Inside the Deadliest Cocaine Cartels. Again, this ties into our war on drugs. Philosophy on the channel, end the war on drugs, start the war on predators. Then, Corey Feldman, discussing his documentary, My Truth, The Rape of Two Corys. Corey from what I've seen, is absolutely devoted to the cause. His life has been put under considerable risk because of his, what he's saying and because of this documentary. It got hacked on the night of the premiere. All kinds of craziness has come about. 
And I was told very early on, you know, if you go down the avenue of exposing sexual trafficking of children, especially the elites doing it, it does not come without a measure of danger. And we have seen massive attacks on this channel, uh, you know, ever since. Massive attacks on myself ever since. And Corey has been going through a lot of hardcore stuff himself because of what he is doing. So absolutely brave guy. Can't wait to speak to him. I've got loads of questions. Right. Just want to give a, a thank you to Kirby Summers. She has hooked us up with many of the people we have interviewed in recent weeks. Kirby is a survivor. She has written books about surviving, and she's also written books about the Epstein case and similar cases. Her links are going to be in the description box below this video when it gets fixed. And Kirby did hook us up with Ticia Huisman, Chris Hansen, Kai Zenbickel, and April Tellick Campbell just all just mind-blowing, absolutely moving uh, interviews that have really impacted the viewers and impacted my own life. So can't thank Kirby enough for arranging that. Okay, let us get Robert into the room. Hello, Robert. John, good to see you, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. Are you in Arizona? I am. And I was reading through your Wikipedia page <laughs> and I learned a little bit about your stay here back during the Sheriff Joe days. And uh, I thought we had that in common. So that was a good way to uh, connect right out of the gates. Yeah, my lawyer, Alan Simpson, got Ray Crone off death row. Are you familiar with that case? I'm not. Yeah, they had him as the Snaggletooth killer. They suppressed DNA. They paid an expert witness 50K to say his teeth matched a mark on the victim when they didn't. And they hid the DNA. And he got found guilty, of course. Right. So, so years later, Alan came along and forced the state to hand over the DNA. And it was run through a crime lab. They found the perpetrator. And that was that. The state of Arizona didn't even give him an apology. Yeah, no, that that doesn't happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, don't expect an apology. We like to joke about that, that, that you know, we're going to get the case dismissed and a written apology from the prosecutor, the judge, the county attorney, and that just never happens. They just kind of forget about it and move on to the next one. They would rather execute an innocent man yeah. than, than have their careers unwind. It's sick. State-sanctioned murder. It is. We see a lot of it, and it is something that sort of baffles me on, on, on the regular to just see sort of the inhumanity that some prosecutors and judges and some of the political backers, you know, up that they sort of install these people and support these people that they have towards their fellow man, people who, you know, just need a little bit of help in our justice system. And so it can be, it can be certainly unsettling, but, you know, we're trying to do our part to, to hold the government accountable and to make sure that people get a fair shake as they're going through the system. So before we get to Maxwell then, which is one of the biggest things on the channel, do you want to tell the people, just introduce yourself and say what you're about and why you came to do this kind of work? Sure. So I am a practicing criminal defense lawyer. I am in Scottsdale, Arizona. I have a law firm here. I think we have about seven lawyers now. We've got uh, two who are sort of in the works. We only do criminal defense law. So we don't do you know family law or juvenile law or any of that other stuff, just criminal law. I've been practicing. I've been licensed for about seven years now. Uh, no, uh, longer than that. The firm has been open for seven years 
And we've handled all, all sorts of different types of criminal cases. A lot of it is sort of the, the lower level state stuff, things like DUIs, domestic violence, drug offenses, uh, a lot of the same stuff that you sort of were, were you know, experienced. We've represented many, many of those types of cases uh, in the state of Arizona, uh, done some federal court cases, and it has been sort of just a, a passion of mine. I wanted to be a prosecutor originally when I was in law school. I wanted to go be that gung-ho guy, you know, cleaning up the streets, rounding everybody up, throwing them all in prison to, you know, prove society. And then I started working with, so I, I went to a criminal defense law firm because I wanted to know how, you know, these scummy defense lawyers operated and I, and to, to be a better prosecutor, in other words, and I started to have to deal with people, you know, people who were coming through the system. And I started to realize these are, these are people, these are, these are human beings. These are not sort of the stereotypical criminal mastermind that you see portrayed a lot in the media and the newspapers and things. These are people who are mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers, they need some help. And so I, I said, I, I would never be a prosecutor. And I became a defense attorney, been doing it. I'm extremely passionate about it. We have a show that we do on our channel uh, called Watching the Watchers, where we are monitoring police misconduct, prosecutorial misconduct, judicial misconduct, and of course, political misconduct with a focus on accountability and transparency. We want to sort of call out the bad actors in our justice system so that we can improve it you know, across the board. What I see a, a lot is sort of a lot of this malfeasance just swept under the rug here, here in Arizona and throughout the United States. I'm not sure if that's the case, you know, where, uh, you know, in, in England, but I'm going to guess that it is because we just have humans, you know, we have human beings who are not perfect and they're sort of, you know, operating a system that has a lot of room for improvement and we, we want to be a part of the solution. So we, you know, on our channel, we, we talk a lot about these cases. We talk a lot about Glenn Maxwell and, you know, many others, from the perspective, not that I'm endorsing anything, you know, that, that she has done, but we are sort of making sure that we're adhering to some of the more fundamental principles of our justice system, which are the presumption of innocence, due process, and that she's getting a fair shake and a fair trial as she goes through. And so we built a whole team of people who've got, you know, 20 something employees. That's all we do. We handle thousands of cases a year. We're very passionate about it. And it's, it's, uh, it's rewarding work when you can help good people kind of get things back on track. And that is such important work as well, watching the watchers, because when you've got corruption to the mind-blowing level that it is that I saw in Arizona, I mean, I was guilty of what I did, but to see other people who were innocent go through it, people on death row who could almost have got executed because of this corruption, you really hit it on the head when you said it's human nature. And once you put the power in these people's hands... And they start to exercise it. And, you know, we could probably just do a whole podcast on plea, the plea bargain system, what yes. motivates, you know, prosecutors. Uh, I, I written a book called Unmaking a Murder about the 10 ways that people are framed by prosecutors and detectives. Um, but let's 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 get over to Maxwell then. So sure. so what what was your first how did you first become interested in the Maxwell case? Well, you know, before before I started commenting on this stuff on YouTube and and sort of taking an active role in being more interested on the national news stories, you know, I was just sort of incidentally following the Epstein stuff and, you know, just kind of poking around following this. This is weird. And I've never liked the idea that there's kind of, you know, multiple tiers of justice. In, in other words, our clients, we get, you know, if, if one of our clients is charged with, 
trafficking in uh, children for sexual exploitation of a minor or something like that, they get prosecuted quickly, aggressively, very harshly. And there is, there, you know, there, there's no escaping that essentially. I mean, the, the whole world shifts to make sure that person gets convicted. And so when I'm starting to watch Epstein and Maxwell and some of this sort of billionaire upper class group of, uh, of individuals who just sort of escape any criminal liability, you know, that in my mind is injustice. We're seeing two tiers. We're seeing two individuals go, you know, get radically different penalties from some of the same allegations. And so I was following Epstein along and then, you know, suddenly he's not around anymore. And I'm going this, you know, this is just looking, this is, is this is strange. This is weird. And then Maxwell comes into, into play and I'm thinking, all right, so now that she's gotten sort of uh, you know, swept up and she's in custody now, now I, I, I really wanted to, to focus on this because I wanted to see procedurally how her defense attorneys were going to be processing this case uh, uh, in large part because I, I was just curious about it, but more so because I want to learn from it. I want to see what, how they're doing this. How are they representing somebody that society has basically already convicted and condemned. And like I said, I'm not excusing her behavior, but we're sort of defaulting to the presumption of innocence, due process, right to counsel, all of those fundamental concepts. And when we start to see that maybe you know around the margins, the government's going to sort of bend the rules a little bit, that sort of ignites a fury within me. It's nope, you know, we got to stick to the rules. We got to make sure everybody's getting a fair shake here. And so I just started poking around. And then the more I was looking into the case, the more I was thinking, these, these are really good defense attorneys and there's something I can learn from this. And so I've just been sort of watching their strategy unfold over the last, you know, however long it's been, it's been months now. Let's go back then to the sweetheart deal. So you've got Epstein procuring kids in a pyramid scheme from Royal Palm Beach High School, even sending flowers to students. All the girls in the school know what's going on. Eventually, word spreads to local cops like Detective Joseph Recurry, who's no longer with us, died mysteriously in his early 50s, didn't trust his superiors. And then you get the police having to take action but this sweetheart deal gets brokered whereby he gets a slap on the wrist. Anyone else would have been SWAT team raided and would be facing multiple life sentences. How does this happen? So it's, it's a great question. And this is why this story is so interesting. You know, it, it, everybody's sort of wondering what is behind the curtain? What is this material that is so damning that somebody like Epstein has the leverage to basically negotiate with the federal government, which is just mind blowing. You know, I mean, you have the, the behemoth of the bureaucracy that we have in the United States, which is the federal government, not to mention the Justice Department and all of the different agencies that were investigating him. And somehow he negotiates this plea deal. I mean, I'm looking at this going, what, How? this is like magic, you know? And, and they're, they're always saying, you know, the defense attorneys can't pull a rabbit out of a hat and make your charges go away, but not, not really. I mean, th th they did, they kind of did, you know, he got, he escaped the criminal liability that, as you said, anybody else in the world would have gotten just skewered over. And so th there's, there's a lot of, you know, mystery and sort of intrigue in this story about what, what leverage was, you know, what is that? And as even we're analyzing Galen's case, we, a ton of it is just still redacted and we can't see sort of behind the curtain. And I think that is what is, is leading so many people to be so interested in the stories that, you know, it's, it's, it's like, there's a flip of the, 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 the levers of power in this case. Typically the defendant is just 
at the mercy of the prosecutor. They just have to accept whatever they take because they know if they go forward, there's a trial tax. In other words, you know, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll give you 20 years in prison because we know if you take this case to trial, you're going to get 200,000 years in prison, right? You have a trial tax, you're never going to get out. So people will take that deal. And the, the defense is on the on their heels. But in this case, you know, Epstein and Galen were just sort of, you know, acting as though they were untouchable because for many, many years they were. And the, the, the big question is why? What, what, what is it? What do they have? Why did the federal government back down back in, you know, in that case? And what has flipped now that you know, they're, they're being a little bit more aggressive in Galen's case? So two things that really concern me about the sweetheart deal then are the input of Alan Dershowitz. That sweetheart deal had the clause whereby future co-conspirators are protected and Dershowitz ends up named by Virginia Roberts as an alleged offender and participant in this uh, activity, let's say. And then the other thing that concerned me was how this was able to get through without the victims being notified. Yeah. Could you comment on those two points, please? So, yeah. So uh, number one, Alan, you know, Alan Dershowitz, I don't, I, I don't know much about that other than his response to it. And he was very, uh, very visceral about it. I mean, I, I think I saw him in the Netflix documentary where he was out there just, no, nope, I'll defend it every day in court. He's got, you know, he's got justifications as to where he was and he can corroborate his, his location at, at those allegation dates and things like that. So, you know, I, this is the type of stuff that I think I would like to see play out in court. If, if these are allegations that are being brought forward by Ms. Guffrey and, and he wants to respond to those things, then, you know, let's, let's, let's see it. And I'm, I'm open to just letting that unfold as it were. Um, as to your second point about, you know, victims and, and, and why this plea deal ever even made it on the books. I think it goes back to the original point. You know, they were, they were moving, they were bending rules in order to get this thing done. I mean, I have never seen, my office, we've represented thousands of people, never once ever seen a plea deal where we have sort of a waiver of any future criminal liability for in, indefinitely, you know, just, okay, we, we just, we're not going to prosecute you again. And not just you, all of the other people in your life, we're just going to include your mom and your sister and your brother and everybody's immune from further prosecution. I mean, I've, I've never seen that. And it is something that I think is so outside the scope that it begs the question of, of why, why would a prosecutor be willing to make that deal? Who else is, you know, has their finger on the lever? And it's, it's troubling that in, in, in Arizona, for example, as you may know, we have what's called a victim's bill of rights. And so before you can resolve a case that involves victims, you got to bring them into the process. They want, they got to be a part of the resolution. They were the ones who were harmed by the defendant's conduct and they need to be made whole. So you bring them in and you have a conversation with them and they get input in what the final conclusion of the case is. And that that didn't happen or it didn't happen to the full extent that it should have back back in Epstein's deal. And and everybody's going total immunity and no input from the victims. I mean, these are just things that you don't see in criminal law often. I mean, I, I have never seen one personally myself. And it's just, you know, it would be a big problem if, if we if that happened here in Arizona State Court. We, that we didn't talk to a victim about entering a plea deal that involved them, there would be hell to pay for that. I mean, that that's a violation of so many rules that it doesn't happen because of that. You know, attorneys know better, better and prosecutors who are supposed to be representing the victims who would be offering the plea deal, they absolutely know better. You know, they would they would know that they're they're breaching some of those rules. And so the question is why. So if rules were bent and violated, 
and the victim's rights were trampled upon, and the law was actually broken in that case, I believe, does that plea bargain then no longer provide immunity as stipulated in the beginning because it was done under in a legal gray area and hence therefore Maxwell cannot employ that as a defense strategy would the prosecutors never have brought the case against Maxwell if that held so that's what her attorneys are are claiming essentially right now that the, these new charges are barred by that prior deal and this is this is you know sort of akin to uh, a, a double prosecution, something that has already been resolved and settled in that prior in that prior plea uh, uh, plea agreement, and I think that is to be litigated right now. There are you know there are a number of motions that are pending in front of the court right now, and that was one of them. I can't remember when that one went out. I have the docket pulled up, but I think that was in mid. Uh, or, or early February when they were submitting that motion, basically saying you have to dismiss. I think it was charges one through basically everything except the perjury charges. They're saying that those just need to be dismissed and precluded because of the prior deals, because of the prior litigation that took place, saying that this is you know akin to double jeopardy. And if, if they're successful on that, right, if, if, the, if this goes up to maybe a court of appeals or a judge comes down on Galen's side on that, then the, the, the most serious of her charges just evaporate. Now, I'm not sure that a judge will do that uh, just because of the severity of this case and because of the attention on it. And so, you know, we'll see. I mean, I think that that is still an open an open question, but you're absolutely going to see Galen's attorneys making every effort to 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 drag that in and say that that precludes them from you know, further inquiry here. So we've seen motion after motion go against her. In the very beginning, when she was arrested, the conspiracy theorist said the fix was in she would get released on bail bond and she would disappear into a foreign country. But the complete opposite has happened. Um, from what I, how I'm viewing it is she's losing plea bargaining power over time as these motions go against her and all these uh, bail bond applications get denied. What do you think then are her viable legal strategies presently? Yeah, great question. So I'm actually working on this for a, a segment that I'm going to do on our channel. But let me show you behind the scenes a little bit. I've got this this uh, this slide here that is it details what I call the two buckets of defense uh, categories for Galen Maxwell. And so I'm breaking them up. We'll go a high level overview into defenses that are oriented around. Uh, responding to the original claims. So these would be the claims of the three victims and they would uh, you know, necessarily be responsive to what they're claiming happened. That's that, that there was a conspiracy, that there was transportation, that there was enticement of you know, underage sexual con contact. So we've got those where we're responding directly to the allegations. And those are actually hard to sort of defend against right now because we're missing a ton of information. We're missing, you know, the the confirmed identity of at least two of the victims. We know that one of them, we know the name of one of them. Uh, the other two is sort of rumors, but we, you know, we, we just, we don't know specifically as, as far as I know, you may know, but but the, the names and what the underlying allegations, you know, where they stem from, what that conduct was. If you know that, then you can start preparing your defense. And so we're sort of, you know, painting in broad strokes here, but it, it you know, generally speaking, the defenses as to the accusations are the case is very old. The case is you know 24 years old, 1994 to 1997, very old. You've also got some allegations that some of the victims have, or you know, victims or accusers, depending on how you what what uh, word you want to use. They are you know they might have some ulterior motives in terms of money, in terms of fame. They they brought that up. I think 
uh, Anna, Annie Farmer was already somebody who was uh, suing the Epstein estate separately for civil damages. She had a settlement and she wanted to, she was also suing uh, uh, Galen Maxwell. And so, you know, a lot of, a, a lot of moving parts here that the defense team, I think will seize on to say, no, this isn't about sexual assault. This isn't about underage, you know, problems here. This was about, about money, about fame. This is, this is somebody who wants to make this their life story and they're doing so. And so those are sort of the, the accusations. Now to, to get back to sort of your question about the bail request. So she's on her third bail hearing or third bail motion. The government, I think is responding this week. They, they asked for an extension. I think they might respond next week. And so they, you know, what, what I think she's doing here is it, it's not necessarily an attempt to to try to get out of custody. If she gets out of custody, that'd be great. But when I was reading this last motion, I noticed that what I think they're doing is they're laying a foundation for future claims about process problems or procedural violations. And what I mean by that is ineffective assistance of counsel. Okay, if, if she cannot get out of custody, then she can't meet with her defense team. And we're seeing sort of hints of that from her defense lawyers. They're saying, no, she's in custody for 13 hours a day, or she's, she's supposed to have 13 hours a day, I'm sorry, out of her room where she has access to a laptop and computers and those things. She's really not getting those full 13 hours. When the defense attorneys try to call in, she can't, uh, you know, they won't connect her calls. She can't prepare in her own defense because she's in custody. And so what they're doing here by just repeating it over and over and over again, you know, we're now in our third attempt. And between the second and the third attempt, they sent a letter over to the court where they were telling the court of all these problems about all of these sort of uh, really harsh conditions that exist for her while she's in custody, which makes it virtually impossible for her to participate in her own defense. And so you're going to see them just sort of check in the box on this. I mean, if I was, if I was defending her, I would have an intern or somebody call and try to connect with her, try to have a conversation with her as often as possible and document every single time that they were denied access every single time that they weren't able to have a conversation with her. And then they, they're just going to make a claim down the road. If she goes to trial and loses, they'll say uh, cruel and unusual punishment under the eighth amendment, you know, losing her hair and all this stuff. They're going to say that there were due process violations because she could not physically participate in her own defense. They're also going to talk about violations of a right to counsel, ineffective assistance of counsel, prosecutorial misconduct for an or for, for asking for sort of impermissibly high bail. You're, you're going to see arguments, I think, over evidence being unsealed, stuff about relevancy and whether this stuff should have even ever come in to the record. And so her attorneys, by I think they know that a judge is not going to let her out of custody ever which is the right move if, if you're the judge because of sort of the concerns that you mentioned previously that she hops on a jet and she's gone with the wind. But this is more about identifying where the government was so, I would say, you know, not accommodating to her in her defense. And they, that's going to open the door for future claims, future appeals that, that may actually have some teeth to them. So if Sheriff Joe Pio can get away with guards murdering mentally ill prisoners dead rats in the food, insect infestations, burly edible um, food, then what Ghislaine's going through then seems about standard for everybody else who's pre-trial. So if she was able to get play uh, by filing these motions and, and documenting all of this, wouldn't every other pre-trial inmate in the country have the door open to make similar claims? 
Yeah, you, they, they would. And I think that they they would if they could, you know, if they had millions of dollars and the the best defense lawyers in the world, I would guess that they would probably be trying those things as well. But, you know, I'm not sure that any of these things are going to have any merits or that a judge is going to uh, t take them into advisement or take them into consideration, because I think you're right. I mean, I think these types of claims have been largely tried and exhausted before. Yes, you are in custody. Yes, I don't think that we should be treating you like like a piece of dirt, what show what, what Sheriff Joe did was so reprehensible. I mean, I can't believe he got elected as much as he did. But, you know, the, the story that that she's, you know, suffering, I think is it kind of falls on a lot of deaf ears, because everybody in prison is suffering, right? It's not it's not a country club, right? It's not a good environment to be in. And that's part of the process. And so it's just, yeah, it's it, we, we know that the, there may be some truth to some of these claims. Maybe she cannot communicate as much with her attorneys. Maybe she can't get on every phone call. Maybe she doesn't have access to a laptop all the time. But those aren't constitutional violations to the point that warrant dismissing her case or that she you know, she didn't get even a modicum of due process. No, you got most of the due process. The other stuff is marginal around the edges, and that doesn't justify a dismissal of your case. I think that's ultimately where the judge will end up. But her attorneys are are going hog wild and they're doing a very good job, I think, laying the framework to just to leave open the, the possibility that these future claims can be made down the line. So pre-trial detainees cling to pipe dreams of every possible option enabling their freedom. Do you think there's an extent that her lawyers are monetizing that and cashing in on her wealth? I would absolutely think so. Yeah. I mean, they are, they're filing a lot of stuff right now that I think is, is good, is good legal representation. I mean, I, I, you know, I can't condemn her attorneys for doing their job. I think that what they are doing is, is very aggressive. It's very comprehensive. It is uh, it's, it's excellent criminal defense work. I mean, truthfully. And so, you know, I, I, I haven't seen anything that I would categorize as stuff that would be unnecessary or, you know, frivolous to that extent, this is sort of how these big cases work. You know, they are looking at every comma, every syllable, every statute to identify where the government is making a mistake. And that's just sort of run of the mill standard criminal defense stuff. Now, what we're seeing here is magnified. It's, you know, it's a hundred X what you would see in a regular case because of her, uh, of her wealth, because of this is, this is basically it for her, right? You know, what, if she wins this case, that's, that's the end of that line. But if not, that's it. I mean, that's, you know, she's, she's, Life's basically over. I don't think she's ever getting out of prison. So everything is on the line here. The attorneys, I have no question, they're, they're making a, a significant amount of money, but they're earning it. They're, they're doing a lot of work. And so I can't really fault them for that. What kind of hourly rate would they be working at? You know, this is a great question. And I was, I was wondering about that myself. I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine about it. And we were sort of, uh, we were sort of comparing and contrasting. I would, I mean, in my opinion, I think it should be in the several thousands, probably an hour, um, several if, if thousand I, an hour. That's my opinion on it. You know, there are wow. high, pro, there are high profile attorneys who, you know, they kind of start at nine fifty and they kind of work their way up from there. And in a case like this, she's got, I think three different attorneys or, or actually more than that, three, I think lead attorneys, and then a whole separate slew of other individuals who are on there. So, yeah, I mean, this is a multi-million dollar defense team is what I would, what was what I would ballpark. Wow. Okay. So we've just got one minute left then. I'm going to put your links in the description box below this video so people can click on down there to your channel and, and what you're doing. Um, how can people contact you? What's your preferred method? Are you on the socials? 
And um, do you want to tell people again what your videos are about? Yeah, I, yeah, I'd love to invite people over to our channel. We, we talk some, some of the same stuff that you talk about. It's more of a, we, we, we uh, review a lot of documents. We go through a lot of court proceedings and lawsuits and criminal charges and probable cause statements and arrest warrants and affidavits and that type of stuff. But we have a live show that we do every weekday. It's at 7 p.m. Eastern time here in the United States. We go live on our channel Monday through Friday. And the channel's just over at my name, Robert Gruller ESQ. And so, you know, I'd love it if, if, uh, if some people found our content useful over there, we, you know, we'd appreciate you checking us out and joining us on the live streams. Uh, other than that, you can find me on the locals, you know, Twitter and, uh, on Facebook at Robert Gruler ESQ. And, uh, and I love, I want to tell you, I love the work that you're doing. I think this is, this is great that you are sort of using your experience to detail and help educate people about what's you know, what, what, what it is like to be on the other side of that, because I know that because, you know, because I work with people who, who unfortunately sometimes have to go and cross that line, but it's just, you know, it's, it's sort of heartwarming to me to see that you are using this to help educate other people about the experience and do some good in the world. So I just want to commend you on that. Yeah. It's a completely different world only by, by being submerged in the system. Did that was like my wake up moment. So yeah, trying to share that knowledge. Yeah. And if, if there's any breaking news then with Maxwell, would love to get you back on if you're up for that. Would love it. Yeah, I had a great time. And I and I like I said, I appreciate your work. So I'm happy to come on anytime you'll have me. Really appreciate that, Robert. Thanks for your time too. Thanks, Sean. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Everything's going smoothly so far. We've got Jesse and Lewis coming in now. Let's see. Joining, joining. Jesse, Lewis is still in the waiting room. Let's see. Joining. Okay. We're going to be talking about drug trafficking next. Hi, guys. I can hear one of you. If you want to just turn on your camera. Hey, Jesse, how's it going? Oh, good, mate. Very early in the morning. But... Oh, well, thank you for staying up, man. Um, and with Louis, is it Louis or Lewis? Uh, Lewis. Lewis. Hey, Lewis, how's it going? Good, good. Am I right. in? Can you see me? We can't see you yet, but if you press your turn on the camera button. I'm going to put on live. Yeah, there's a little button in the bottom left-hand corner with a video, video symbol. There we go. There we go. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. So our mission statement on this channel is to end the war on drugs, take all that, those resources of locking kids up in private prisons and go after the predators, the super predators of the world. People are really harming society instead of you know almost a million arrests a year for weed possession at the peak of the war on drugs. We think that's absolutely insane. And we see all these pedophile priests getting slaps on the wrists, bringing in these high-priced lawyers. So the work you guys are doing ties in exactly with that. So you've got the, the first-hand knowledge of the, um, the cocaine, cocaine cartels from Lewis and then Jesse. What, what brought you to this project? I'll ask you that first. And Jesse? Uh, well, I, I wrote a book on um, a Bomb Scott of ACDC who um, I claim in my last book, the died of a drug overdose. And 
I went down to Miami in 2015. I made friends with some people down there. And after I finished the book on Bon, um, uh, an individual got in touch and said, look, I know a guy in Miami um, who's thinking of writing a book. He's had an amazing life in the cocaine cartels. Um, he's been talking to some people in Hollywood, getting treatments of his story, but he's not quite happy. And he wants to put it all down in a book. Would you talk to him? So um, it was the end of 2017 and Lewis and I started uh, WhatsApping pretty much daily for, uh, you know, two, three months before we kind of decided that we would actually embark on this project. But by that stage, I had sort of flagged it with uh, Penguin Random House in Sydney and they were already interested in the book and we had a, uh, an offer to, to go ahead and write his life story. So over the next uh, two years, we pretty much got together every day, just like we are now and, and just started talking and recording. So Lewis, I was involved in ecstasy trafficking back in the nineties, had people smuggling ecstasy from Holland through Mexico, getting smuggled over the Arizona border. And most of my male friends from back then are now dead. That lifestyle leads to death, prison, mental hospital, the police. Just looking at what you've done is absolutely breathtaking when I was researching you. How are you still alive? That's the way the cards played. Why am I still alive? I don't know. A lot of things must have played in my favor, obviously. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of controversial situations. I got kidnapped. Uh, I was in the business for 25 years. So you can imagine, you know, some days were great. Some days weren't so good, but I had a lot of controversial situations in a very highly volatile business. How am I still alive? I don't have an answer. The cards played out. The planets were aligned. Maybe the, the type of person I am, I always knew one thing. Not to piss people off intentionally. If you piss them off, let it be because it's not your intention to piss them off. You have to come across a certain way. You have to be smart. You got to read people in this business. You know it. You read people wrong and brother, it's over. So you got to read people like, well, not, when I was in Mexico, the last thing you should do is, you know, a Colombian go to Mexico and say, you know, it's my game. It's my merchandise. I represent the Colombian cartels. I'm in charge. You do what I say. You know, that'll go over once or twice in the end. They'll plot and they'll bring you down. The Mexicans will eat you alive. When you're in Mexico, you're in their territory. Maybe your merchandise, but, you know, in the end, they're, they, they've got control over you. So you just got to read people. And, um, you know, it's a people game, like anything. People are very important uh, part of the formula here. So I've written five books about Pablo Escobar. He died in the 90s. That was very historical. My associates in Mexico told me, you know, there are things that you just can't go there presently. So, Jesse... Are you worried about blowback from going into this realm of 
cartels who are worth multi-billions and can just wipe people out anywhere on the face of the earth? Yeah, good question. Um, it was obviously something that I raised very early with, with Lewis. And he was quite upfront about it, that there were certain individuals that sort of feature in his story that we should not piss off. Um, so, you know, your normal sort of temptation to maybe describe someone in a colourful way is suddenly kind of excised from your manuscript. You, you just play it very cool. You don't take any risks with certain individuals. And that's certainly what we did. That said, um, you know, Lewis is fairly, uh, you know, forthright in his opinions and his descriptions and uh, he lays it all on the table, you know, very authentically, which is, I think, why the book worked for me ultimately in the end, because his voice was coming through um, and he didn't pull any punches. Um, but obviously, you know, uh, as you know, the drug trade very well. A lot of these people are dead now, but dead people have brothers, they have cousins, they have sisters, ex-wives and so on. So you just go, you can't be too careful when you're writing a book like this. Yeah, I mean, look at Saviano with his round-the-clock bodyguards. Yeah. So, Lewis, what got you into this in the first place? Well, uh, I, I was working at a radio station, and before that I was going to college. And it was always available to me here in Miami in smaller quantities. And I always thought it was a good way to you know, supplement your income. So I started dealing ounces up at Georgetown. And while I was at the radio station, I used to sell to the DJs. Uh, but that was all small time. And um, suddenly I, meet, I met this girl and I flipped out for her and, you know, very attractive girl. We hit it off. And she just happened to be a top-notch distributor for uh, Medellin Cartel here in Miami. And that's how I started I started with her. What year was that then? That was around 78, 79. So is this in the, the Blanca era or is that after that? No, it was exactly during that uh, time when, uh, you know, we used to buy our liquor at Crown Liquor. We used to go there and buy, you know, Old Brion, La Fille Rochelle, Petrus, whatever, all our liquor. And, uh, you know, spend three, $4,000 at a shot just buying wine or whatever. And uh, when I started going out with Bia, it was a few months after that that they hit the uh, Crown Liquor Store with that uh, party wagon. Uh, and uh, the people that Bia worked with here at first, Poli uh, and his group, they were very, they had a very vicious reputation from Medellin. They called him Poli because he killed a lot of policemen. He was already a bandido while Griselda was still coming up, okay? He's older than Griselda. But I remember we used to hang out at the Omni because he used to shop a lot at a place called Galliano or Galliani. And a few times we'd be somewhere says there, there's a Griselda's people. Griselda's people didn't want anything to do with Poli. They respected and they knew who he was. Poli had two guys with him, Joel, Poli, Pedro El Gordo, and then Mario came in. These people were very respected from Medellin. They were feared, they were who they were, 
they had a vicious reputation for you know allowing no mistakes you get killed with them you get killed there's no tomorrow there's no i'm sorry you get killed end of story and he you know while we worked with poli the ochoas didn't want to work with us the bidraitas didn't want to work with us nobody else wanted to work with us because it was such an intense situation of violence with these guys and these guys were who they were and i just happened to fall in there you know did i plan this no it just so happened we landed with probably one of the most vicious people with the most vicious reputation at the time even griselda's people didn't want any part of it they just didn't want any part of it it was a coin toss because griselda was nuts she had some very good people with her vicious people but in this case, I've got to tell you, it's a coin toss. Probably with, you know, leaning towards Poli's advantage. Yeah, I think Narco should go back and do a series on Griselda. That, that would be fascinating. So, Jesse, then. Hell of a story. <laughs> yeah, when, you, when you're writing a book, you know, originally I was with Random House. Things have got to go through the legal department. And mm. if you write about someone, you've got to send them paperwork you know whereby they sign off and say it's all accurate we won't sue the publisher in a book this complex and with the danger factor how does that work to be honest i was really surprised in the end how how little sort of lawyers raked over it it seemed that um i was able to kind of you know verify pretty well you know certain things that had, uh, lewis had told me and at a certain point um, you know, with things that you can't verify, you just have to take the risk. You know, otherwise you completely gut your book and you've got no action and you've got, you know, nothing that the reader's going to be interested in. So, you know, like, you know, Lewis was talking about this character, Polly. I mean, you Google the name Polly, you're not going to find anything on this bloke. But according to Lewis, according to um, uh, a, uh, a Miami detective that I met, you know, while I was there in Florida, you know, Polly was, as Lewis says, the most feared kind of enforcer in Miami, you know, and this guy was on the streets working to take him down. So, you know, I met the guys who were involved in actually, you know, the front line of, of bringing these people to justice. And obviously a big part of writing a book like this is that you have to bring in the, uh, you know, the perspectives of other people. And certainly I did that with the law enforcement agents who were involved in, you know, Lewis's capture, you know, uh, from, from US Customs, the DEA, um, right through to, you know, people who were working you know, with the Brits. And, um, and I got their perspectives and they verified everything. And it was very easy to establish that, you know, what Lewis was telling me was the truth. So, you know, to answer your question, um, you know, I tried to verify as much as I could and where I couldn't, I made that uh, pretty plain in the, in the story and, you know, let readers make up their own mind about, you know, whether it's the truth or not. So, Lewis, our research has led us to believe that while George H.W. Bush was fighting this war on drugs and posing with record cocaine seizures, that the CIA were importing coke and weapons were going on those same flights back down to Nicaragua. We've got Oliver North's diary entries talking about visiting cocaine labs 
what is the relationship between the cartels and the CIA? Well, back then, it was very real, just as you say. You know, the CIA was not funded through uh, government or through Congress for the Contra War, so they funded it through the cocaine, cocaine for arms. The CIA and, and drugs, what can I tell you? You know, uh, Jesus, uh, we're involved in Afghanistan now. Suddenly, Afghanistan's the number one producer of heroin. Before, you never heard of Afghanistan heroin. It was always in the southeast, out of the Burmese Triangle, when we happened to be in Vietnam. So you've got a lot of situations where you have airlines that are linked to the CIA bringing in drugs, whether it's heroin or cocaine. So, you know, the money is so big. It's so, you know, un, un, under, under the radar that, yes, it's very tempting and it's very easy for them to do it. So how much? I don't know. How it's happening right now, I don't know. But that it's happened and it probably continues to happen, yes, I believe it does. And if people want to research that further, I suggest they Google um, Air America, Southern Air Transport, Barry Seal, um, etc. So, Jesse, you said you interviewed cops who arrested some of these villains. Did you interview any of the villains yourself? Did you have any hurry moments with the bad guys? Uh, no, not, not so much because, you know, uh, as I said at the beginning, you know, we're pretty, pretty warned off uh, going too close to, you know, sort of criminal networks. Also, we wanted to kind of um, not alert anyone that we were working on this book and then sort of invite any kind of repercussions. Um, so, you know, most of the stories sort of involve people who were already deceased. Uh, so no, but I did, I did, you know, meet with um, certainly, a, you know, a lawyer for some of the biggest cartel names in the business um, in Miami and, and got his perspective and, um, you know, made sure that we weren't stepping on anyone's toes and, you know, got the all clear. So, you know, I did as much as we, as, we, as possible to, um, you know, not raise any alarm bells or anything like that. So, Lewis, then, during your many years in the trafficking profession, what were your hurriest moments? Listen, every day, I must admit, okay, you know, I enjoyed what I did. I liked my business. I was very much involved. I had no plans of getting out. But every day is a situation where you could get a phone call that could be a very uh, upsetting situation. Okay, a, a load goes down, somebody does the wrong thing. You know, those are, you know, it's always very, um, you're always a little nervous about that. Now uh, that I got kidnapped uh, a few times, uh, those weren't exactly fun. You know, I almost got thrown into a pit of crocodiles and I was saved by the bell. You know, I was three minutes, four minutes away from being thrown into a pit of crocodiles and a phone call into in reference to a pool game that I had lost the night before that I owed the guy $250,000 saved me. Okay. So, and uh, the other time, you know, I was 21 days held and 
for 21 days, you're thinking, I may die today. That's not fun. And, you know, the other time I got kidnapped by the guerrillas and then we just worked out a deal. Instead of buying the merchandise from the locals, we bought it from the guerrillas. And, you know, what can I tell you? Uh, you know, that, that was not that rough of a situation. I mean, at first it was, but it cleared up really quick. But uh, even though I loved my business, my business was a business of uh, high stress. You worry because you're responsible. That's why you make it to where you make it because you actually worry about things. You don't take them lightly. But it's, it's, it's a very risky situation, without a doubt. During the 21 days, what were your conditions of confinement like? The first three days were not that great. I was handcuffed to a bed in a, just a low-rent apartment uh, with three or four people, bodyguards there. And, um, you know, just ate the regular food that uh, was served, you know, rice and beans and a little meat or whatever. I mean, not terrible conditions, just handcuffed to a bed. Then I got taken to a farm that had a swimming pool. And, you know, they told me, listen, just you're here, but we're here also. If you try to run, we're going to shoot you in the leg. Because right now, the guy that told me that said, if it were up to me, I'd fill, uh, I'd fill you full of holes. Because he didn't like me. But we're right now we're gonna shoot you in the leg, and you know, you're gonna have to we're gonna have to remove the bullet. Believe me, we don't have any anesthesia, we don't have any of that. So we suggest you don't run, just take it easy and read a book and take it easy. But you know, every time that phone would ring for, for whatever other reason, you would think it's the phone call for you, you know. All right, take him out of his misery. I knew they were never gonna torture me in that situation. They just put a bullet in my head. And I made really good friends with the bodyguards, the, the people that were taking care of me. And they were all saying, you know, we like you so much. For us, it's going to be a tough one. It's the first time that we ever have, we're going to draw straws on this one because none of us want to do it. You know, it, it, it's pretty interesting, the situation that arose, uh, arose there with these guys. After I got released, they all called me to work for me. My wife had uh, our first child and uh, they all sent her gifts. So my wife was receiving gifts from El Buu, El Caballo, El Diablo, all these people. And they, they were the ones, the bodyguards that were taking care of me. They all wanted to go work with me in Mexico. Wow. So, and these guys were, you know, no pushovers. These guys had a hell of a resume, you know, these guys were good at what they did. Wow, so, ab absolutely fascinating. And if people want to find out more about the story, they're going to have to check the book out. Do you want to tell us, Jesse, where that book is available? And we will be putting the links in the description box below the video. Yeah, it's available in Britain through uh, John Blake Books, in Australia through Penguin Random House. And it's coming out in the US in November through Roman and Littlefield. And that's called Pure Narco. Green! Hi! Hello! How are you? It's been a while? Yeah, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Well, this system is new to me too, so I understand. Uh, we've, your, got, your... we've got a whole new audience, so I'm going to ask I you see. some stuff that we've gone over previously. And could you just tell people then, 
who you are, what you do, and why you got into this line of work. Oh, God. This is a long story. <laughs> <laughs> it started in 84, 1984, with the disappearance of a little boy in the middle of a big city like Brussels, in the middle of the day. And uh, I thought that the police was going to stop the world from turning. It was a six-year-old little boy, the mm. player Kafas. Mm. But that did not happen. And I knew a policeman from Brussels, and I asked him, uh, what are you doing to find that little boy? And he said, well, we're waiting. I said, waiting? For what? And he said, well, for clues. I couldn't believe this. I could not believe it. A little boy of six. Now we are almost, well, 30 years further. And... Nothing happened. And then we needed the Dutroux case in Belgium, who hit the world about uh, the incompetence of police departments, justice departments, um, for the world to see and the people to see that this is not working. When your child disappears, you're in, in a never-ending nightmare. While everybody thinks that our, our institutions are doing their job, which is not the case. I, I've been thinking for a long time, is this incompetence or is this something they want to be the way it is? It took me years to find out. Because if it was incompetence, it, it wasn't that bad. I mean, you can train people to do decent work now, after more than 30 years, I uh, understand that it is uh, wanted. So are you they saying... They want it to be. Yeah, they want it to be that way. So you're saying it's by design. Yeah. And there seems to be an abominable amount of child abuse going on, particularly with wealthy people. What is the explanation <laughs> for that? Uh, there, there is child sex abuse going on uh, in every culture, in every uh, system, from high to lowest levels. Um, the thing is that after so many years working with so many people in so many countries, I've been studying in the United States, in England, in uh, France, um, to, to try to understand what is this, how is this possible, what kind of people are there is that have this need to abuse little children. Um, and But also why nothing is happening on a world scale to stop it. So then you, 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 you start to connect dots and then you see that the child support and all these aids for children um, in fact, are used. I think they started uh, on a very good um, basic, but everything has been hijacked by the system. And then I was wondering why? Why is it so important to rape children? And then you start finding studies. They don't publish much about it, to be to be honest. That. Um, when children are raped at a very early age, um, the connection between the 
two parts of the brain are um, seriously harmed. It, it is difficult for them to connect between emotions and rational thinking um, because they need all our, their energy to survive the, the um, everything they don't understand. Why has it been bad to be uh, abused like that? Are they uh, guilty of the crime of somebody else? All their lives they will struggle with this. And this weakens their personality and that it makes them the perfect slaves for the system. So when you connect all the dots, it's like a big puzzle. All these little pieces, they fall in place. And then you think, my God, this has to stop. So I've been warning for this for over 30 years now. I've written over 20 books to, to make people aware of what is going on, really going on. And then one Jesuit told me, uh, give me a child under the age of 11 and it will always be mine. Mm. And that's true. That is true. Unless this, these children are helped, it is not that difficult to restore them. But they give the impression it is almost impossible. When you see all the uh, prevention campaigns, they claim that when you are sexually abused, you are raped, uh, you are damaged for life. That is not true. You are much more than a, a raped victim. You're a whole person. Part of you has been damaged. But we can restore that. And then you have the other side, those who rape. What kind of people are they? And then um, you see that most of them have been abused in their childhood. Now, not always sexually abused. There are five big parts of abuse of children. Mentally abuse, abusing the children by saying you're ugly, nobody will ever love you, you're nothing, uh, you're stupid. And these children hear this their whole, their entire lives. Then you have the uh, psychological abuse where children are locked up in the basement, in the dark. They don't know for how long, uh, without food, without uh, uh, something to drink, without light. It is very, very scary for a child. Then you have the physical abuse, burning children with irons, with uh, cigarettes, uh, um, you know, hitting them, uh, cutting them sometimes. Um, then you have the um, uh, alcohol, drugs, or medication addiction of one or both parents, which is a very underestimated form of abuse on children. And then you have the sexual abuse, which goes from uh, uh, touching a child between the legs to torture exposing them on, for porn uh, uh, movies uh, to uh, yeah, killing them. So th there is a whole spectrum in this. Now, children that have been victim of at least three of the, four, the five forms of uh, abuse uh, have a very high risk to become um, uh, 
victim of post-traumatic stress disorder on long term, which means it can last a lifetime when they are not helped to, to get back on track. Now, that getting back on track is not that, that difficult. Um, you just have to know how. And because I saw so much lies around all this, uh, I started my own academy to, to train people to work with victims. And I don't like the word, in fact, because it's very stigmatizing. I prefer to call them co-humans um, uh, and child sex offenders. And it is a must in my academy to work with both of them. You cannot understand a victim when you don't understand an offender. So you have to work with both, first to restore the victim, and second to stop the child sex abuser from um, offending again. Because while I am working with one victim, the offender is making another 150 in average new victims. So this is really a vicious circle if we don't uh, attack both or treat both. And even working with child sex offenders is not such a big deal. I mean, it's, it's not difficult. But then you see the prevention campaigns where we all pay for continue in fact, um, reinforcing the victim statue. And it's up to you, to the child to say no. And, you know, I, I did expertise on men who raped six-month-old babies. I mean, how do these children have to say no? They can't. And that the system knows that. And I, uh, for me, it was unfathomable to see that, in fact, um, they, they focus on the victims, but nobody is making prevention campaigns towards the offenders. That's why on my website, I made very, very clear flyers, very clear messages with pictures of uh, adult men, pictures from the back and the text, it's up to you to say no. It's not up to a child. And I want these flyers to see go all over the world because the, we have to put the blame where it belongs. And the blame is the offender who chooses to, to rape a child. The child never uh, decides to be raped. We have to use the right words and put the blame where it belongs. So I started this academy and it is a tremendous success all over the world. We even have people from Bolivia, Argentina, Australia, from all over the world. I have now six people who finished, have their diploma, and will start working soon with victims and families. So the most common question that's come in for you, Corrine, is that Maxwell, the Maxwell case, people mm -hmm. wondering what possesses females to commit these heinous acts? Well, we see that there are, and I warned for that also maybe 20 years ago, that more and more women become uh, child sex abusers. But that's because more and more women are slowly becoming men. Before, uh, uh, female victims internalized the guilt and um, 
the pain of being raped or abused. And these were the victims that automutilated, that had problems with anorexia, bulimia, and all that. But we see more and more, also thanks to, because that's positive, uh, we can talk about rape now, especially concerning women and young children. Um, but this goes with the fact that fe uh, females become more manly, masculine. And we know from little boys being abused that they externalize easier their hurts and their pain. So they act out towards others, while female victims before and still uh, act out towards themselves. Must be me. There must be something wrong with me. And that's why we see that um, 10 years, 20 years ago, we had much more men uh, rapists and child sex abuse than women. Uh, but as I said, women are changing. And in this case, not for the best. Um, they act out on children, their frustration, their pain, their hurt, to be in control, to have that godlike feeling that they are in control, but they never take somebody of their level. They always take people who are weaker than they are. But that's the same for men. You previously said from your experience that females committed even worse crimes than the men. Could you expand on that? Well, it is my experience, and that this I can't work with women feminists because it's, it's, for me it's too difficult. I work with victims of child sex abuse. I, I work with the male offenders. I have victims of female offenders, and that's when I started seeing that these these crimes committed by women were even more vicious and pervert than from men. Mm. And I think it is because women have more uh, vivid fantasies of hurting others. And that's why I, I am so terribly against people that just say, in French they say, n'importe quoi, uh, meaning just anything. Uh, I never heard somebody say that um, psychopaths have empathy. I work with psychopaths, the worst of them. Also those who torture and kill and, and child serial killers. If somebody has empathetic feelings, it are these people. It will shock all of you. But that's because you, you, you um, You, you, I don't find the right word. I mean, just a minute. My head is tired. Um, it's because they confuse uh, empathy with compassion. They have a lot of empathy because they know how it feels to be humiliated, to be hurt, to be damaged. They know it because they've been there. What they do not have is compassion because there was nobody there when they were children to help them, to save them, and to protect them. So 
And compassion is something that is also taught in childhood. Having compassion with your co-humans or with animals or whatever, well, they didn't have that, and that is not developed. So they don't feel compassion for their victims at all. Some people in the chat have asked if there's a radio in the background or something. Perhaps it could be turned down. I can it's, do um, that, yes. Thanks. The radio, I do. Hold, hold on. Okay, thank you. thank you. I, I didn't know you could hear this. <laughs> Very soft, but... Yeah. Radio. I was yeah. even aware. <laughs> oh, dear. That's okay. So I recently interviewed John Sweeney, yeah. and he talked about how when Ghislaine Maxwell was growing up, she was subject to corporal punishment and whipping by her father. And then later on, um, at at various properties of Epstein's, books were found on BDSM, like the story of O and other BDSM literature. Do you think then that this, you know, psychopathic father that Ghislaine had, Robert Maxwell, how he treated her created this, you know, this, this streak in her that led to the deviant behavior? Without any doubt. Without yes. any doubt. It's, it's, so it's laid no down, doubt. It's laid down yeah. in the early stages. Absolutely. It's not an excuse. I mean, there are many people who have been through horrific things in their childhood and who still are good people, very empathic, compassionate people. So it's not an excuse uh, saying that they had an horrific childhood to do what they do. They do it, and there's no other explanation, believe me. They all say it after a few months of therapy. They do it because they like it. It gives them relief. And uh, in between two crimes, the the, the stress builds up again. The frustration builds up, and they know only one thing, and that is to get relief by hurting others. Somebody's going to pay for my pain. That's in short what it is. So she was projecting that then when she became this super predator. <coughs> she surely was, and she was relieving herself. I think I, I, I mentioned that in a, in a previous interview with you, with the example with the vase. You know, you have, you're working day and night for your boss, and never there is recognition that he's always complaining, nothing is well enough. But you can't turn towards your boss because then you lose your job and then you know you're going in a downwards spiral. You can't pay the rent, you, you're, you, you're in the street, so you know that. So your, your frustration is building up and your anger. And then when you go out of your office, you're aggressive in the traffic because you want to, to relieve yourself from all this stress. Then you come home and then you see this beautiful, very expensive antique vase and you grab it and you you just throw it against the wall. And then you have this feeling of relief. Relief that even 20, 30 years later, when you think of this again, you'll think, my God, this was, I'm so sorry for the vase. It was such a beautiful piece of art. But it gave me such a relief. And this sentiment will go above the loss of the vase. The same we see with child killers. 
they kill the child. They, well, yeah, sorry for the child, but it gave me such relief. They don't see children as human beings. They see it as means to get rid of their frustration. So you're saying that every time that Maxwell abused a child, procured a child, there was a sense of um, tension was dissipated. She had a sense of relief. Yeah. Does that get, does that become even. does that become for the like for the drug user? You have to increase the frequency of that. Yeah. Like T- Ted Bundy, in the end, he just went on a complete frenzy. Is mm-hmm. is that how it works? Yes, it works like that because. Um, it is not enough anymore after a while because the source of the problem has never been treated, you see, be it, be it uh, Maxwell or others. The source has never been treated. And sometimes it can't be treated. Sometimes they are so far away, so far down, that you have to rem- remove them from society forever. And as I said earlier, well, let's put them on the island of Epstein with sharks around them and give them food for one year and see it so they can they can take care of themselves. Uh, but you have to sterilize them because they are able to produce children just to get rid of their stress and their frustrations. Um, you, you can give them the death sentence too, but it's a bit double for me. Some Some killers told me I prefer to die because I know when I get out of prison, I'm going to do it again. It is such an urge urge to get even to do that. They want, they prefer to die. Some of them told me that while in prison, they are watching television and they see a commercial with a child, they have an erection and they, they, they have fantasies again about raping that child in the commercial. So they know they can't stop. Well, for these people, uh, it's already in my first book. I, I, I designed a complete new prison for this kind of people because they can help us. Um, they can help us understand unsolved crimes. And that's something they, they, they should be forced to do. I wrote that in the book to get to, to restore part of society after what they've done to society. So they should be used. We, we can treat them well. We are not monsters like they are. We can use them. They have to help um, solve and, and solve cases, but we can never release them again. Well, it's always fascinating speaking to you, Kareem. We've run out of time. Are you okay to tell people the names of your books and organization? Oh, uh, Child Hunters is uh, one of them. Uh, the second one, uh, the, the translation of the second one, Little Sinners, Church and Child Trafficking. It's about the trafficking of babies after birth. Uh, that so-called where, um, uh, we're destined to be uh, given away for abortion, for um, adoptions. And I heard, I think, President Trump say we have to stop adoptions, adoptions until it is clear. Believe me. Many of, of the newborn babies are sold to, and that there will be uh, in a week, uh, uh, the most horrific uh, release of a documentary from uh, someone from Poland. I have it, but it's in Polish, and it will be subtitled in a week. I have an interview with the, the man who made it. 
Um, he's very famous in Poland. It is horrific, horrific brothels all over Europe for newborn babies till four years of age. No. You can do whatever you want with them. Some, some of the bit, it is horrific, but it will come anyway, so you'd better know it, because it's going to be a terrible shock to the world again. And the message from the maker of the, the documentary is uh, he made a, um, a release of about two minutes, and it is this time to Ursula von Leyen, who is in fact the chief of the European Union. Mm-hmm. And he really talks to her. He, he bought a baby, a newborn, beautiful baby, to save it from being sold to universities mm-hmm. for experimentation. Life, a live baby, a living baby. And he, he bought it from them. The demand from universities is tremendous for organs, for tests like vaccines and all that. It is Horrific. Wow. So this well, will be next week, probably. People will be confronted with, on top of this. this. And, we, and we will provide the people watching all of your links and urge them to continue to support you. So thank you very much for coming on, Corrine. I um, hope I didn't frighten people, but there is hope. We can do ourselves so many things. We have to take over all the institutions back because they were initially well. We have to take them back and start all over. My academy now, I started because I can talk, but I can also do. The next one will be an academy to form policemen that are there for the people and not for their governments. We have to take it back. And I invite people to start taking our world back because it's going to be too late. All right. Hope you have a great rest of your week, Corrine. Thanks for joining us this evening. You take care. You too, and success with uh, what you're doing. We need people like you. You know that. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay. Bye-bye. 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 Hello. Thank you for having me on. It's great hey. to Hey, thank you so much for coming on, Toby. No, it's really, a pleasure. Big fan of your work. Really appreciate you spending time with us this evening. No, I'm looking and... forward to the talk. What would you like to tell people then who are not familiar with your work about what you do and, and what led to you getting onto this particular subject of the drug traffickers? So I lived in Colombia as a foreign correspondent for around 15 years. And in the background, it's always there, the cocaine industry. It's just that's part of the conflict. That's part of the corruption. That's part of the violence. And it's impossible to ignore. I mean, there's so much beautiful in Colombia, as we all know, and it's really important to keep re- repeating that. But the problems of that country are entwined with the cocaine business. And I wanted to write a book that I felt hadn't been written before. I wanted to take someone who lives in London, who lives in New York, who lives in Australia and say, or who lives in Beijing and say, this is what it feels like to be in the middle of the drug war. You know the basic outlines of Pablo Escobar's life. You know, basically, if you're interested, when cocaine was uh, invented. But have you heard about what it's like to sit with a killer for hire as he thinks about his life. Have you heard what it's like, the witchcraft, the superstition, the girlfriends, the lovers? That's what I wanted to bring to it, what it's like to be in a party filled with narcos. That was the book I wanted to write. And basically, that's how I came to write Kilo. Um, And yeah, that's what it's like. It follows one kilo of cocaine from the beginning, the production in the jungles of Colombia, 
through the cartel hands out onto the ocean as it tries to get to the United States. Wow, you just touched on so many things there that would take hours to cover. Um, so let's start out with the witchcraft components of this then. What have you found out about that? I mean, it's a weird world that these men and women, and they're mainly men who work in the cartel system, it's not clear how much they believe in, so they end up falling for anything. They're deeply suspicious, and they've all got their own little witch, their specific witch, who will cast spells for them. In my book, I'm interviewing a witch who's preparing. He's a man, so I don't know if it's quite a warlock. I don't know the terminology. Someone more well-versed in that world can help me out. But he was preparing this spell that was going to help the cocaine become invisible. It wasn't really going to become invisible, but this is what they do. And it was going to be something that it's in the port, and because of this spell, the inspector just won't look at it. It will pass by. And part of that is they take a burnt cat's bone, they cast some spells on that bone, and they put that bone in with the shipment of cocaine. And if you look at these operations that the Colombian police and army have undertaken against the traffickers, but also the narco militias who operate in the countryside. These are kind of armed, uniformed groups who at their bases traffic cocaine, as different from the cartels, which are kind of people who could dress like you and me, who live in the cities. In the countryside, it's these narco militias. The Colombian army keeps getting them, either through their girlfriends or through their witches. Like when someone is <laughs> going to do a big deal, they will hire the witch. They'll fly the witch in, my personal witch to come and do. And it's the heart of that world, because at the heart of cocaine is this deep, dark nihilism. They don't believe in anything. Treachery. It, it, murder your brother. That's the heart of cocaine. So this black magic is kind of unsurprising when you think about living in the middle of a world like that. Yeah, I've written multiple books about Escobar, and through my research, so much money was flooding in from the traffickers to the priests that the number of services that were being done to the patron saints of the traffickers rose above the number of services that were being done to the regular saints. Did you did you find any stuff like that? Absolutely. So this um, this uh, this contract killer, they're called their sicarios, right? As you know, the sicario I was with, um, he took me along for his prayer before the Virgin of the Sicarios, going back to the big man Pablo Escobar. In one neighborhood of Medellin, he built this shrine. It's a modest shrine. It's the statue is perhaps, I can't remember, but six feet or something. And it's kind of built into the side of a mountainside. And it's a kind of very, a few, a, a few benches in front of it. But this is where the Sicarios go to pray before a job. And I asked him, look, how can you pray to the Virgin Mary for success in killing someone for money. Like, if you believe in that, surely you believe in hell. And the answer was so typical of these men and women. He completely denies responsibility. And his mind-bending philosophy is this. Well, if I'm successful, that means that that person had killed, committed a sin and God wanted me to kill him anyway. And if he stops me, if God stops me, that means that person's innocent. But you see how they completely wash their hands of any responsibility. That's yeah. how they do Yeah, I mean, psychologically, that must help them deal with it as well. Now, how dark does this witchcraft get? I mean, are we talking human sacrifice? No, but they were not that I, the witch, I mean, I'm sure you can find any. You know, I haven't really heard 
I'm sure you can find anything. I personally haven't heard of anything with human sacrifice, but he did tell me that a couple of interesting things. He said spells that women come to ask him to do is to make a man fall in love. And his he's kind of in the cartel world. So in this case, it was a woman trying to get a drug trafficker to fall in love with her. These women are constant. The women who opt for that, which is, again, there's a minority. I do want to be clear about this. These women who opt to live in the underworld are constantly trying to get a drug trafficker as a boyfriend to stay faithful to them, to live that life. So they fight amongst each other. Amongst each other. And he said, I won't do that because when you put a spell on a man, or it can be a woman, or like that, he said, you turn them into a zombie. They lose willpower. And obviously they're going to be, they're not the same person as they were because now they're in love with this woman and they shouldn't be. The other one he said was that you can cast black magic that will get people to kill themselves. Again, he told me he didn't like, he didn't do those. But he said what it is, is they'll cast a spell on you and you just hear someone all day long saying, you need to kill yourself, kill yourself. Do your family a favor, kill yourself. And that is constant all day long for six months. And he said, people just can't take it. And they'll end up killing themselves. Or there's other ways that will drain your life force. It got kind of confusing. I won't say I followed every aspect of the theology he was explaining to me. But it's a weird world. So you go some pretty dark places then researching this material. I know when I researched about the Castaño brothers, for example, the horrors that they did, you know, the whole villages where they thought that there were left-leaning sympathies, communist sympathies, because their father had been tortured and killed, putting, you know, ripping pregnant women open and putting live hens inside their stomachs, impaling babies on spikes. What are the biggest atrocities you've come across in your research? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, the paramilitary movement, as you say, they're kind of led by at one point the Castaño brothers, which themselves were, I mean, as you know, were. I mean, that's about as close to kind of Greek tragedy, that weird family. I remember that. See, I mean, that the, you have these three, but what is it? There's uh, Carlos Castaño, there's Vicente and then there's Rambo. What was Rambo's name? I'm trying to remember the one who was initially killed. Um, Carlos, um, Vicente, and Fidel, 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 and like you have basically by the end Fidel killed, and then Vicente giving the order to have his own brother killed, Carlos, because Carlos was going to interrupt what the cocaine shipments. I mean that that's just pure cocaine. I was there for. um, By the time I get to Colombia, it's really the violence is such a whirlwind at that point, the country just cannot cope with it. And I remember reading the national newspaper and there was a massacre in the most important port town, Buenaventura, which is obviously being a port. It's constantly being fought over right now. It's actually suffering another new wave of violence. The violence there is so horrific that the priest has said he wants to do an exorcism of the entire city. He wants to go in a helicopter and throw holy water out over the whole thing. But back in the early 2000s, there was a massacre of something like 12 fishermen. And it was the last page of the newspaper. They just couldn't. No one could compute those things. There's a lot of really horrific things that are also coming out about what the army did. Very brutal stories about how not only the counterinsurgency, what they would do, 
but how in order to get uh, raises and advancements in their careers, they would kill innocent uh, peasants, what we call small farmers, those who don't have their own day laborers in the countryside, and dress them up as guerrillas. They would put uh, fatigues on them. They would put a machine gun. There was one case of a 16-year-old girl who made her living. This is how poor she was. She made her living going town to town, selling little trinkets. And they killed her. And they didn't even bother taking off her high heels. That's how little they feared they were going to be investigated. Mm. They were at a situation now they just threw a... So the story was a woman in high heels in the country countryside has like a handgun opens fire on a unit of soldiers that was the story they would give because at that point they're like no one's going to investigate us i mean it was that that's the horror to me they didn't even care they were just like well you know we don't even have to struggle with a story for this one guys just go for it and that and that could have been six thousand innocent colombians were killed that way and dressed up as guerrillas there's a theatrics of war as you know that is once the violence has gone so much, it doesn't mean anything just to shoot someone. You've got to make it theatrical. This was the country that invented the Colombian necktie. You slit someone's throat open, pull the tongue out. That was during the violence. That The violence. It's just so violent. The war was called La Violencia. So it can be stomach churning. But in the midst of this, you do see these social workers, these social leaders who brave all of this out in the countryside with no protection. And they just say... I'm going to fight for my people. Those are the biggest heroes I've ever met in my life. Just sheer bravery to stand up to people like the Castaño brothers. It's just incredible bravery. So you're on the ground then absorbing the direct consequences of drug laws. When Escobar started out, he could source like a kilo of coca paste from Peru or Bolivia for about $60. And because of drug laws, it was going at 60000 a kilo on the streets of America. Now that percentage profit is so enormous do you agree that it doesn't matter how many arrests are made the drugs will always keep flowing yeah i mean once it's the perfect question because once we've all lost parts of our soul just like getting too close to this studying this industry it does something to you you're not the same person and just the sheer despair of having watched an entire generation go through this and i I'm not in favor of drug legalization. In, uh, no, let me just say this. It's not that I have a... I'm not in favor of one or the other. Basically, I think if you want to do with your body what you should do, I probably lean that way. But what I can say is the drug war is just not working. When we have farmers out in the countryside of Colombia who... They, there's not a bridge to connect them to the town. There's not a highway. I, Where I was doing my research for this book with the farmers... It took us six hours to get from the smallest town, which was tiny, but that was the market town, six hours. And that was like three hours on a broken up highway, which had bomb blasts in it, an hour on a boat, an hour on a motorcycle, and then walking for an hour to get to this little settlement. When I looked on Google Maps, again, 30 kilometers, six hours for 30 kilometers. Now tell me how you're going to transport one ton of bananas how are you going to transport one kilo of cocaine or coca paste? Throw it in a backpack. You're on your way. And so, yeah, as you said, right now, you can get the prices have changed, obviously, with inflation. Right now, a kilo of cocaine in Colombia is about, I think it's about um, 
$1,600, roughly. I think that's what the UN put it out as. If you get that to Mexico, $10,000, Miami, $25,000, New York, $40,000, the highest part on the world, if you get, I'm not suggesting anyone do this, but get that kilo to New Zealand, each gram is 230 euros a gram. Wow. It's absolutely staggering, isn't it? The, the most fascinating part about this is, and, and I've, I've said this to a guest earlier, you've got Carlos Leda as a US federal government witness saying the Medellin cartel contributed 10 million to the CIA to fight this war in Nicaragua. Barry Seal was one of the, the pilots. You've got Coke coming into the US, which Gary Webb wrote about and said, you know, contributed to the crack epidemic. And then you've got weapons going down south and a lot of people, including the intelligence agencies, making money off this. So what have you learned about the intelligence agencies' involvement in with the cartels, the relationship with the cartels? Yeah, I mean, that was before my time, so I, I especially the Contras and stuff. And the CIA, it's not very, I mean, it's going to sound obvious, it's not very visible in Colombia. Their role, they are at this point, I think, kind of geared towards, they have announced that they're trying to take down the largest cartel at this point. They've flown in, they've said this is a national security thing. In recent years, I wonder, because before previous... Um, peace process in 2016, which took the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia, the FARC, and negotiated this peace deal with the Colombian government, putting an end to 50 years of that particular civil war, the FARC had been responsible for much of the area where the cocoa was cultivated. So I wonder if since I've been there, they haven't the, if there was the uh, the possible relationships that had existed before may have been more strained by a revolutionary socialist organization controlling the coca. But we do know that places like the DEA has been um, open to corruption. We know this. I mean, th this is, there's uh, stories, not stories, but confirmed reports of DEA agents partying with drug traffickers and prostitutes. I mean, this is something, it's an extraordinarily dirty world there that they're playing. These are very no-rules games that they're all playing, and those lines are very blurry. I remember speaking to one um, drug, uh, former drug trafficker, um, and he said that, man, the war on drugs is dirty, but, man, it, the way they fight it is even dirtier. It, it's it, 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 There's a lot of untold stories, I would say, there. Well, you've got Oliver North in his diaries talking about inspecting coke labs and shipments of this shipments of that and my belief is that the black market in drugs because it gets bigger every year that wall of money just corrupts every profession it comes into contact with so you've got corrupt cops prosecutors judges lawyers even the intelligence agencies politicians and on and on and on it goes all right so your book then the the trajectory is this kilo of coke could you take us through the various stages then you know within the, the limited time that we've got yeah absolutely of course so it starts out in uh, this wild kind of imagine like the old wild west the mountains and the jungles of colombia where the coca is grown there's hundreds of thousands of hectares now but again to be very specific about this for people who don't know colombia you actually have to kind of struggle to get to these zones now. 
you're not going to go to Bogota, come out of your hotel, take a wrong turning and you're in the middle of a coca field. It just doesn't happen that way anymore. The government does have control over some parts of the country where it's very peaceful. You know, you can have your holiday and nothing will happen. You'll have a great time. But on the margins, there are still these lawless zones where the narco militias control. So the place I went to is a place called Catatumbo, which is right up by the border with Venezuela. That in the old indigenous language means the land of lightning because there are more lightning strikes there than on any other place in the world. Every night it was a five hour lightning storm over the hut I was staying in. They're the, the peasants. Again, it's not meant disrespectfully the way it sounds in English, peasant. It does mean just it could be a day laborer or someone who has a small plot of land. There, they have like a lot of them, one hectare, two hectares of coca. They grow it. You can do, I'm trying to remember, I think four harvests a year. Colombia, the joke is it's so fertile. Just toss any old seeds on the ground, come back six months later, you've got your plantations. Just the, the perfect amount of sun and rain. So they grow these. These are farmers. Then they hire uh, the what they call the raspachines, the, the day laborers, to come in and pick the coca. They get paid about, you know, $15 a day. It's often the only work there is. What was interesting that I saw is because we're in the border with Venezuela, you had all of these people walking out of the economic misery that is Venezuela, just looking for a new life, but literally walking. I mean, it's like something out of medieval Europe. Just They've got a bag on their back and they're just walking to look for a new future. I mean, it's incredible. Um, and you would hear these stories about the people. They would say their families were going hungry. So they often are the ones recruited to pick the corn, uh, pick the coca, sorry. Then I followed that. Then it's made in a laboratory into something called coca paste, which is one stop short of pure cocaine. That's basically what they, the cartels demand that the farmers do. They have to make it themselves. So they take this ton of leaves and you get like a, you know, a kilo of coca paste. That is what they then sell. They take that, they put it in their rucksack. As I say, they go into uh, town. The town I went to was a place called La Gavara which has its own horrific history of mass violence, massacres. But now it's controlled by these different narco militias. They're actually in competition, so shootouts are very frequent. But I wanted to be there for market day. It's this weird thing like it's the old Wild West. There's no law. And it's part of the tradition. These guys will go in. They'll get their money for selling it to the narco militias who set the price. The narco militias will then sell to the cartels. But the tradition is the farmer then drinks until he almost passes out, but also will spend time with the prostitute. So the parties are in the brothels. And it's this massive party that everyone's kind of involved in. It, it's it, Everyone loses their mind. Once cocaine takes over a town, it really steals its soul. It's kind of a social decay. As crime goes up, prostitutes will run off with farmers and the farmers will leave their families. The introduction of sexually transmitted diseases into poorly educated towns i mean it's really it's really i mean it's this kind of weird dark carnival that you see um and yeah that's so that's the first stage really and at that point then the narco militias have their own advanced laboratories that cost about fifty thousand dollars to set up they turn that kilo that paste uh, that kilo of paste into pure cocaine that's when they put their little stamp on it to show who made it i.e guaranteeing the quality and then it moves in really to the cartel's hands, whose job it is to kind of export across. And that's the first third of my book. Do you, do you want me to go on? Uh, yeah, what, yeah. What happens next? So 
So now it goes into the urban cartels. And I went to Medellin. So there's basically always been, as we know, these kind of two historic centers of the cocaine industry in Colombia, Cali and Medellin. And I interviewed people who are in and around the biggest cocaine cartel existing in Colombia today, which is called the Gulf Clan Cartel, which is uh, run out of northwestern Colombia, northwest, yeah, but it's managed to take over. It now has units all across uh, the country, and it's run by a drug trafficker called Otoniel, and he actually came out of that far-right paramilitary movement. His boss would have been Carlos Costaño at some point. He demobilized, like a lot of them, and then decided, screw this, I don't want to be, a, I don't want to live a legal life. So I was hanging out and interviewing people who were operating for that, but also people who interviewed for possibly one of the oldest cocaine cartels, if not the oldest on the planet, which is the office of Endigado. That still exists. And just to remind your listeners, I'm sure you've talked about it in the past, given your, your writings on Pablo Escobar, it was the military wing of the Medellin cartel. When Pablo Escobar wanted his debts collected, he got these sicarios, these teenage hitmen, and they have this motto, which is debts get paid with your money or with your life. But they, once their boss was killed, they became traffickers themselves. They had just been killers for hire, this whole armed unit. And now they traffic as well. So I was there meeting these girlfriends, meeting, going to these parties with these guys. And I had been hanging, not hanging out, but really meeting them, meeting up with them for years. It took, I was accumulating a lot of different experiences and incidents to put into one book. But this was years I had known. And I, I made their acquaintance because I became friends with a man who's on the edge of that. He knows them in the social scene. And the social scene for these guys is so important. The Friday night parties, the parties that go on. And this guy I knew worked in that scene. He would make money introducing... Um, I met him by coincidence uh, in a fashion show. And he would make money presenting models and actresses to drug traffickers. And that's a guy I got to know pretty well. And he would introduce me. And so I would start out years and years ago, I would do an interview with a killer for hire. These guys are, indisp are absolutely dispensable in the cartel world. You know, you find there's even a term for when they're going to kill the killer for hire instead of paying him. They call it a, a Swiss. So a guy's going on a Swiss mission, which means he's going to kill this politician. He's going to come back. When he comes back for his money, we kill him all loose ends tied up. So these guys, but I would interview like a 15-year-old killer for hire and they would say, and because no one got caught, I kept my end of the bargain up. No one's going to get caught if you speak to me. I would get to know more and more people. And so in this, in the mid, middle third of the book is that I'm meeting the drug trafficker who's this uh, former policeman. That's very common as well. They see all of the kind of chinks in the armor of the drug war and they know who's making the money. So they kind of get a lot of intelligence. He would sell intelligence to the cartels. Then he jumped and became a trafficker himself. And at the same time, he's has this plan, this really interesting plan, because the biggest trafficker previously had run Medellin with an iron grip, a man called Don Berner, who was instrumental, obviously, in killing Pablo Escobar. Once he was extradited in 2008, Medellin has been without a king. And this trafficker said, this is chaos. We need a war. We need to get rid of all of these traffickers, these hundreds of possibly hundreds, no one knows, but let's say at least dozens. Let's have a war. We'll get rid of all of the kind of useless ones. Then we can negotiate with the government. 
And this is really interesting. He had that ambition. And he said, I want to get out of this business because he's a new type of trafficker called the invisible. Previously, you have your Pablo Escobar, big guy, big bellies, a poncho, a kind of cowboy hat, a gold gun, diamonds. And then they walked around. They loved it. They loved the attention. I'm the big man. The new generation of traffickers wants to be indistinguishable. They don't want to be spotted. Because once your face is on the front page of the newspaper, that's it. The countdown's begun. The Mexicans you see have changed their behavior in the last two, three, four years. They used to be like, I'm the big man. Now they don't want to be seen. They're trying to hide their faces. The Colombians got there 15 years earlier. So he's embarked in my book. He embarks on this plan of trying to get a war going, a drug war. A drug war comes about once every 10 years in Medellin. We're due for another one. There's three cartels that operate in Medellin. That's a lot of cartels for one city. And that's a, that's a tinderbox, you know. That, someone's going to step on someone's toes. There's only so much these beasts can kind of live in close connection, uh, close proximity. So then my book, the final third of my book is to kind of show the ingenuity that the Colombian underworld shows in trying to get the cocaine out of the country, the submarines, how they traffic it using through airports. I'm with the police in an airport and with a, the hero police dog is called Shadow, this beautiful German shepherd. She's found tons and tons of cocaine. She's annoyed the cartel so much, a bounty is on her head. They want to kill a German shepherd. It's just madness. I mean, it's Sombra, her name is Shadow. So I'm with them, then I'm with the Navy as they're trying to find these submarines that they make in the jungles that can carry six, seven, eight tons of cocaine. And the final bit of the book is when I'm with the US Coast Guard on the biggest cocaine corridor on the planet, which is the Eastern Pacific. If you look at it, there's just nothing there. Just look on Google Maps. There is nothing there. It's basically, what would it be? The West Coast of South America. If you, It's just incredible. And that's where so much of the cocaine goes to the biggest market in the world, the United States. And that's really kind of summing up the book in a very, hopefully, short and concise way. Wow. So all the research I did was to encompass Pablo's story, really. And he died in the 90s. <laughs> and you've really brought a lot of things up to date that I find this really fascinating. So you're saying then that after Escobar's demise, obviously the the Castaño brothers and the Cali cartel and Don Berner had the power. So Don Berner became the king of Medellin. Is that correct? Exactly. I, I, I'll tell you, you know, people talk about weird things where they see absolute power. And this I'll never forget. When I was in Medellin, this was in the early 2000s, you would be wherever you were. And you would be talking about the situation and someone would say, Don Berner is maybe behind this. That's power. That you are alone with someone and you still worry and you lower your voice to mention a man's name. It's just incredible the power he had. And we now know that there have been mayors, the state, the establishment in Medellin has had pacts with these uh, with these cartels, because the cartels have gangs. Every inch of, uh, a lot of Medellin is carved up and controlled by the gangs called the combos. But each gang answers to a certain cartel. And those cartels provide them with the drugs for micro-traffic. That was a huge twist as well. The Colombians said, why are, we, why are we leaving all of this money selling to our own people on the table? Now micro-traffic, they call it, 
selling to their own people in the cities, it's a huge problem. But the cartels will provide the drugs to these gangs. But if there's a war, those gangs are expected to be the foot soldiers of that war between the cartels. And that's how it goes. And the gangs can also be a training ground. If you're a smart kid, you got it. You know, you can pull a gun quickly. You don't care. You're smart. You're intelligent. You could rise up into the cartel system. That's your first chance to shine. And these guys who are growing up in those slums, I mean, the exclusion, the marginalization is so total for these kids. If you are born poor in Colombia, it's so stacked against you, the chances are you're going to die poor. And that's a huge amount of the fuel of cocaine because they don't have a chance. The education system's awful. It's a very class-based society. If you look the wrong way, higher-ups higher will say, oh, no, you're not for us. I mean, it's brutal, that, that country. Well, that's what Pablo told his mum. We may be poor, but we're not going to die poor. I'm going to make a million. Yeah. How long was Don Berner in control of Medellin for? And so, how? what was his demise? So um, Don Berner takes over very quickly. He actually, um, he t uh, Pablo's killed, what, 93, right? So I think he consolidates power very quickly. But again, as you mentioned, what's really interesting is we're now seeing a massive shift in the way cocaine is uh, organized because the AUC, the Castaños, are stepping in to take over. It's the first, it's not the first, but it's the real culmination of these narco militias, both the FARC on one side, taking over the area where the coca is growing, they're now taxing cartels who come in to buy it, and the AUC, which is just outright exporting it. And so they're taking over much of the countryside. Don Berner will take over Medellin. He is, Don Berner actually, again, the marriage of the far-right paramilitaries and the cartels, is Don Berner joins the AUC. He takes on another name, which is, his real name is, um, it's, it's, it's his uh, alias, uh, is Don Berner. He takes on another alias in uh, the AUC, which is Adolf Paz, Adolf Paz, Adolf Peace, right? I mean, you know, and he's a guy, um, he becomes, and then, they have this sham of a peace process between the far-right paramilitaries and the government in around 2004, 2005. I say it's a sham because the leaders were expected to kind of answer for themselves. But as we know in the Civil War, you know who's the most dangerous? Mid-range commanders. The guys who were actually carrying out the ambush, standing on that beach at midnight, putting the cocaine on the boat. Those are the guys you need to have come in, explain what did you do? What information can you give us? You know, who were you bribing in the police, in the army? But they said, basically, we only talk to the leaders and the, the, um, the mid-range commanders just go home. But some of these, not trials, but when they interviewed some of the top AUC leaders, you go back to the thing about the atrocities. There was one, I think it was called Hotta Hotta, um, a human rights advisor told me about this. He had been at this. Hotta Hotta was there, and uh, a woman said, Senor, Senor, uh, Mr. Hotta Hotta, JJ, uh, Mr. JJ, um, look, you were where you were operating in the Civil War, my daughter um, was disappeared. I've been looking for her for 10, 12 years. Can you give me any information about where my daughter is or what may have happened to her? And he said, Ah, oh, lady, give me a break. I was overseeing 2,000 people were killed. How am I going to remember one? How am I going to re ever remember your daughter? Mm. I mean, that lack of humanity is what this violent war does to all of us, I think. If you, any of us who get too close to the drug war, we get it lightly, 
because we're observers, but it, 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 it does something to us. It changes us, I find. Were you by any chance able to interview the surviving assassin of the duo that hit La Rabonia? No. Who was that? Was that Rocha? I get it was one of them. One of them was one of them was Byron. Okay. And I can't remember the name of the other one. It was the curly haired kid on the motorbike? Oh no, 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 no. I didn't get I didn't get to interview any of the kind of historically important people. Yeah. Like my drug trafficker who let me in was a kind of small timeish drug trafficker. Um, you know, he, he was important, but he wasn't those that level on the level of people like so yeah the old guys a lot of those guys are dead um and don burner sorry i should have said don burner joins the auc then he gets extradited um in 2008 he's actually still serving his time we think he'll be back in colombia in about it could be shortly i don't know exactly i can't remember when it could be in a question of five years interestingly traffickers have told me that's the one person that if he was to arrive in medellin every couple would step aside. Really? He's the one who could reunite. I don't know if that's his plan. He may like he's out of it, or maybe he's come back. But Don Berner, funnily enough, had a standing order that anyone who worked with Pablo Escobar was to be killed. So if you ran into him, he was living it like some fugitive from the Medellin cartel was living in Caracas, and you walked by, you recognize him. You're like, hey, that's him. Just kill him. Don Berner will take care of you. But what's funny is, the most famous Sicario of Pablo Escobar, who certainly became the most famous in later years, was Popeye. So he was in prison and people would go interview him. This is in the early 2000s. And he would be in prison. He'd say, I'm a bandit. I'm a bandit for life. If you let me out of prison next day, I'll be committing crimes again. These, this blood, bandit blood. Don Berner gets extradited. Popeye says, Excuse me, I would like to leave prison now, please. <laughs> he was in prison. <laughs> he was in prison because he was terrified. He thought Don Berno was going to get him. And now, as soon as he was extradited, and Popeye actually shows the weirdness of the drug world, he became a YouTuber. And he had like a million subscribers. Yeah, I was watching him. Yeah. I mean, and he, there was a great RT like, documentary about him, the RT interview. Yeah. yeah, there was loads with them. He would do this. He did a book, but he had trouble because he started threatening people involved in producing the book. Like, why are you going to threaten like publishers? <laughs> I mean, what, what? But and so he got involved in like extortion. And I think the cartel sort of saw him as a little mascot. He would be invited to parties and kind of hang out and drink booze for free. Um but he was an unpleasant person, very far-right politics, like a lot of these guys. Hated communists because these traffickers and cartels guys like to think of themselves as, as you know, underworld entrepreneurs. I hate socialism. You constantly hear them say that. So his politics, he actually died very recently. I think it was just last year. Of yeah, I saw country. that. Yeah. And did you see the final photo of him in bed? No, I, mean, I did not. It's, I think it's, he, I'll, I'll find it and send it to you. I mean, he's just, lung cancer has shrunken him into just nothing he's there on bed it's a truly disturbing photo but this man carried out a, this man was heartless so you know screw him <laughs> you know but. we have gone into overtime toby we've got Corey feldman coming on next so yeah he's going to be talking about what he does i can see him on the screen now so i'm gonna to have to let him in Huge thank you for joining us no it's been my pleasure really honestly there's so much more i could talk to you about um you know, I would love to get you back on. Go, go. You know, take it to the El Chapo. 
level and, and everything that's going on now in Mexico and more about the war on drugs. So please let, please, please let everybody know where they can find your book. Well, you can buy my book anywhere. The paperback version is coming out in the US at the end of this month. It will be out in the UK in over the summer. You can find more about my work at my Twitter handle, which is Toby Muse, uh, at Toby Muse. So at T-O-B-Y-M-U-S-E. All right. Thanks very much, Toby. You have a great rest of your evening. Cheers. John, thanks for having me on. Been a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye.